0: Good morning. Super happy to see some of you this morning. Look forward to seeing others of you in the very near future. So last week we talked about an encounter Jesus had on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had taken his disciples on a very very brief trip. They headed across the Sea of Galilee from, from west to east. And along the way, a horrible storm blew up. As is often the case there in that part of the world. It was a terrifying storm. The, the Greek word that's used there can be translated as hurricane. Water began to come into the boat. The disciples were just all but certain that, that death was upon them. So they cried out in that, in that moment of panic. Jesus, Master, Teacher, Lord. Don't you care that we're perishing? And as Jesus woke up, and we can picture him rubbing the sleep from his eyes, he was fast asleep. Actually, he wasn't aware of the storm, but because he was at complete peace. No anxiety, no fear. It was just a word. Peace, be still. The waters became like glass. Everything was calm. And then he looked at his disciples, and he said, Why are you such cowards? How can you still have such little faith? Because they had allowed the storm, the fear that was arisen in their hearts because of that storm, they had allowed that storm to cause them to doubt the goodness of God. They had allowed that storm to cause them to doubt the things that they knew to be true about Jesus. He had proven himself time and time again, and yet because of the size of the waves and the wind and this tiny little boat they were in, they doubted him. They cried out, and he proved himself again. And then as they arrived, to the eastern, eastern shore there, the Sea of Galilee, the land of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, they were immediately meted by a man, just as wild as that storm. This dude was naked and he was out of control. Nobody could control him. And he comes rushing up to Jesus and he falls down at his feet. And then the demons, they, they cry out, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, what have you to do with us? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And then they begged him. They begged Jesus not to, not to send them out of the country. You see, all demons can do is beg because Jesus is sovereign over them. As creator and sustainer of everything, all they can do is beg. And so they begged, would you please just allow us to go into these pigs? And I need to tell you, I have beat myself up all week. I misspoke last week. And what I told you last week was that the reason that pigs were unclean animals is because they had cloven hooves and because they chewed their cud. Pigs don't chew their own cud. In fact, what God says in Scripture, is because they don't chew their cud that makes them unclean. Now, I'm sure y'all didn't sit up all week worrying about that. It wasn't like the linchpin in my sermon, but I need you to know when I misspeak like that, it kills me, like all week. It was because pigs don't chew their cud that they were unclean, but Jesus agrees. He agrees, and he allows them to go into these pigs, and they rush down the hill, and rush down the side of the, of the bank, and they go off in the Sea of Galilee, and, and they drown. And immediately, the man is in his right mind, from a maniac to a man in his right, mi- right mind right there, and the people are terrified, just as the disciples in the boat. You see, when the storm lifted, they were more afraid, because they realized they were in a boat with God. And now these people, they had been terrified of the demoniac to some degree. This man was a threat to them. He was a threat to himself. But now they were terrified, and they asked him, would you please just leave? But the man, he said, can I I be with you, Jesus? You've changed me, completely changed me. Now, here I am in my right mind, and I want nothing more than to be with you. And he told him, no, you're going to go out to all these Gentile towns, and you're going to tell them what God has done for you. The first preacher Jesus sends out, began the morning, is a naked, crazy, violent man. And just because he came into the presence of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in a moment, from maniac to disciple, just like that, that's the power of a true encounter with Jesus Christ. So we continue this morning in Mark's Gospel in this, this series, of, a series of miracles. as Jesus continues to show us who he is and to, and to validate the message that he preaches. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please, as we turn to the fifth, fifth chapter in Mark's Gospel. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is to the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he, set, and he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, kumi," Which means, little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. It began like this, and when the townspeople Excuse me, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So the townspeople on the east side had begged Jesus to leave, and so he turned and he left. He went back across the sea to the western shore, possibly back to Capernaum. The place it had become it had become his home base of sorts for his earthly ministry. This is the place where, where, where uh, where Peter lives, where Peter's mother-in-law lived. This was, this was a place where, where Jesus had spent much time. And so he returns back to the Western Sea, and the people there, they were waiting for him. There were some of these people that were suffering. They were suffering with illness. There were some of these people that were suffering with oppression under demons. There were some of these people that were just there to see what Jesus was going to do next. But Luke tells us that the people were there and that they were waiting. And so I have this picture. We don't know this for sure. It's probably not the way it played out. But I have this picture of these people. They're just there, and they're staring at the sea, and Jesus is out on the boat, and he's teaching them. He's teaching them incredible things, and they know that he's a great miracle worker. And then in order to show his power over nature and over the spiritual world, he tells his disciples, we're going across." And he turns and leaves, and the people just stand there like this, waiting for him to come back, like an like a audience sitting around at a rock concert waiting on somebody to perform an encore. Because to many of them, that's all Jesus was, right? He was just entertainment. Just come back and do something cool. And so they're all just standing there like a bunch of, like a bunch of sheep, Staring off into the sea waiting on Jesus to come back and then he comes verse 22 Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him He fell down at his feet. So we're introduced to a new man and his name is Jairus Now you're going to notice that most of the people that come to Jesus needing healing or help We're not told their names now. They had names. they were real people with real problems They really needed healing from Jesus, but we're not told their names or told this guy's name unlike The woman with the high fever, unlike the leper, unlike even Peter's mother-in-law, we're told this guy's name is Jairus. Jairus is a Hebrew name. It means God enlightens. But more interesting than Jairus' name is his position. It tells us that he's a ruler in the synagogues. Now, we know that the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, they could not stand Jesus or his ministry. We were told a bit earlier that the religious leadership they had joined together with the political leadership, people they wouldn't have had anything to do with otherwise, so that they could seek a way to destroy Jesus. They hated him because his message was an incredible threat to them because they had given their lives over to this twisted and deceived picture of who God was and how people were to know him. God had given them this law. He had given them this tool as, as a way to move them forward, to drive them forward to a place where they recognized that they were unclean and that they were desperately in need of a Savior, someone else. But instead of that, what they did was they built a fence. They said, we're going to take this law, and we're going to build a fence around it, a fence so big that we'll never step into sin. You see, it can be sinful to avoid sin when the reason you're trying to avoid sin is that you never have to repent and look to Jesus Christ as Savior. When you're avoiding sin just so you can find some self-inflicted holiness, some self-righteousness, That can become a problem. It can become pride. It become a system of just moralistic, legalistic, law-keeping nothing. It amounts to nothing. Because the thing that was meant to drive them to Jesus Christ, it became the thing that hardened their heart. They became self-righteous. They became all about keeping these laws. And so when Jesus comes and he calls them to repent, we don't need to repent. We're not unclean. When he calls them to turn and trust in him as Lord and Savior, this was an affront to everything that they knew. So they couldn't stand Jesus. But, of course, there were exceptions, like the man named Nicodemus, the guy that we saw. He was a Pharisee, and we saw this encounter between him and Jesus in John 3 as he comes, and he's heard enough of Jesus' message that he he knows he needs to hear more, and so he comes to him in the darkness of night, away from prying eyes. He comes to Jesus to hear more about this gospel that he's preaching, and we know that in the end that he was there, a true disciple. He was there with Joseph of Arimathea, taking Jesus' body and bearing it and caring for it. He was counted as a true disciple, and now this guy as well. This guy named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, he approaches Jesus. Now, a ruler was a layperson. He wasn't a rabbi or a scribe or a Pharisee. He was a layperson that was in charge of taking care of the synagogue. He would have been in charge of scheduling things, making sure that the facilities were in order, taking care of the school that was there. But this would have been a position of prominence within the Jewish town. Some of the synagogues would have had one person that was a ruler. Some would have had a number of them. This was a position that would have carried with it some level of respect. This man, just like, just like Nicodemus, just like the Pharisees, just like the other religious rulers, he would have had a great deal to lose by coming to Jesus Christ. And yet he did. In the middle of the day, in front of all these other people, he came before Jesus Christ and he fell on his knees. There must have been something which motivated him more than the fear of being at odds with the religious establishment. There must have been something that motivated him more than the thought of losing his position within the synagogue. We read, verse 23, and he implored him, he implores Jesus, earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. That'll do it. I have a daughter that is deathly ill. He wasn't worried about what the other people thought about him in this moment. He was worried about the life of his little daughter. Luke tells us this was his only daughter. We read a bit later that the daughter was at the age of 12. 12 was an important age in the life of little Jewish girls. In current day, this, when they would have taken their bat mitzvah, where they would have been expected to understand what the law says and been expected to keep up with it and been expected to participate in religious ordinances. In Jesus' day, that was about the time when they would have been ready to get married, to go off and start their life, so that this girl, this young woman... She had her whole life in front of her, and now she's laying in her bed waiting to die. So this drives this man. I can't even imagine. He's a father of three little girls. I don't worry about what other people think. If I know that there's a guy and he has a chance to heal my little girl, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to him. And I'm going to look as foolish as I need to look. As I fall down on my knees before him, I say, look, please, please, I'm begging you earnestly, please come. Please come and heal my little girl. And Jairus implored Jesus earnestly saying my little daughter is at the point of death come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live clearly this man knew about Jesus power knew about his authority could he have been one of the rulers at the synagogue in Capernaum possibly a synagogue where Jesus taught where he preached a place where he had encountered this man with the unclean spirit and healed him just a stone's throw away from Peter's house where Jesus had healed his mother-in-law of a high fever Not that much further from the lake, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had taught and healed many people. Whatever the case, this guy knew. Clearly he knew and he believed that just a touch from Jesus Christ could heal his daughter, even if she was ill at the point of death. And so Jesus went with him, verse 24, and he went with him. Jesus goes with Jairus. He heads out because time is is of an essence here. Things are dire. In fact, Matthew tells us that she's already dead. This is a dire situation, and Jesus doesn't have any time to waste. He needs to turn, and he needs to go now, and so that's what he does. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. We've discovered all throughout Mark's gospel that the crowd is not seen in and of itself as a positive element. It's a hindrance. Now, Jesus doesn't resent the crowd. The crowd is a part of God's redemptive plan. Jesus shows incredible compassion for the crowd, but at their root, the crowd serve as a barrier. They they serve to restrict Jesus' ability to move, even his ability to eat at times. They restrict other people's access to Jesus. Spiritually, the crowd as a whole, they don't seem to have any great grasp for who Jesus is, a desire to follow him as Lord. They just want more. More healing, more bread, more miracles, more entertainment. On the whole, these are not people that love Jesus. They don't recognize who he is, as son of the Most High God, and they don't want to honor him as Lord. And yet, we see he continues to allow himself to be thronged about by them. They continue to fall on him to the point of crushing him. He continues to put himself in places where they can come upon him because he's driven by love and compassion. Look, you've heard me say probably too many times to count as we have, as we have walked through, as we have walked through Mark's gospel that the purpose behind Jesus' miracles, the primary purpose behind Jesus' miracles, was to prove who he was and to authenticate his message. Because look, today we've got God's word. We've got the fullness of his revelation here, and we've got the Holy Spirit within our heart. So we can test things against it. And John in his gospel, Apostle John, he said this, I write these things, the things that we read today that they didn't have to read back then. I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These people didn't have the written gospel. They were living it. They were in the middle of it. They had the law and the prophets and the history. They had all these things pointing forward to Jesus Christ. All these signposts pointed them forward. And now here he was. And he was claiming that he was the Messiah. But how could they know? How could they trust that this guy wasn't just some whack job? There had been plenty of people that had claimed to be the Messiah. There's still plenty of people today that claim to be the Messiah. How can they know that this guy is the Messiah? Well, in part, because of the miracles he performed. Again, in John's Gospel, John 10, 37 through 38, Jesus says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, that Jesus performed these works in part so that the people that were there with him in Galilee, they may see and know and believe that he is Jesus, Son of the Most High God, and that in believing they may have eternal life. Those same things which are recorded that we may see and read and believe. But he could have done it any way he wanted. Jesus could have shown his power and his authority by making whales get up out of the ocean and walk. He could have shown his power and his authority by making mountains fly. He could have shown his power and his authority in any way that he wanted to that had nothing to do with man. Nothing to do with these stinky, ungrateful, pushy, too easily pleased people. And yet he didn't. Driven by love, driven by compassion, he continued to go to them, to touch them to be with him, many people that were never going to have any real use for him outside of his miracles, many people that were never going to come to saving faith in him, many people that may well have been the ones standing around calling for his death in the final days, and yet he continued to live amongst them like a good shepherd. He continued to be with them and to touch them and to allow them to touch him, driven by love and driven by compassion. See, he's not just a powerful God. A powerful God is just a terrifying thing. A powerful God driven by love and compassion for that which he's created, it's a beautiful thing. That's the difference between those that are driven away and ask him to leave and those that are drawn in and then fall at his feet. They recognize this is what it means for him to be my God. Now, I don't want you to panic. We're not going to go through all this text this morning. God willing, we will get to Jairus' daughter next week. We're going to just cover, cover this woman here, and here she is, verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So here comes this woman, and she's at the opposite end of the spectrum from this man named Jairus. She didn't have any great position. In fact, she, just like the man that was possessed with a demon, just like the lepers, she was an unclean woman. She had a a discharge of blood that lasted for 12 years. We have to assume that this is some kind of female issue, right? That this is some kind of thing that that was ongoing for 12 years she suffered with this, and that she had suffered under many doctors. She had sought out many physicians. She had spent all the money that she had, but in fact, she was no better off, only worse. Now, I don't think that what God is doing through Mark here is that he's showing us some that we're to look down upon the medical establishment or that we're to distrust doctors. God very often works through doctors. It's an incredible grace that he works through doctors and through medicines to carry things out. It's not that we're to distrust doctors. It's that we're to recognize there's limits, limits which God doesn't have. There's limits to what they can do. When we come to the end of those limits, we find we haven't even begun to, to exhaust any portion of God's power and God's ability. But the lady, she goes to these physicians. She spends everything that she has, and now she's broke, She's bleeding, and she's unclean. If you turn back to Leviticus, the 15th chapter of Leviticus, there's some 14 verses there that talk about the uncleanliness that comes whenever a a girl comes on her normal period, right, her normal menstrual cycle, or abnormal bleeding that goes on like this. That either at the end of that period, or if it's not her normal cycle, at the end of seven days after that bleeding, that she's then to be cleansed, to wash herself, to go in before the priest to offer two turtle doves or pigeons one is a sin offering and one is a burn offering and then she is to be found clean nobody can touch her while she's bleeding in fact if she's to even sit on a on a, on a stool or lay in a bed anybody that touches the bed or the stool they themselves become unclean and we know that anything that is unclean can't enter the temple can't participate in worship so this lady is now alienated much like this madman that we met last week, much like the lepers, lepers completely alienated because of this bleeding that had gone on for twelve full years, an absolute outcast. And this seems crazy to us today, right? These are the kind of laws that people like to point to, that non-believers like to point to and say, "See, it's just made up stuff." Or, "See, that's the god that you honor. You believe the words of this god that tells a woman she has her period and all of a sudden she can't come to worship? This is crazy." But what they don't understand is what God is putting on display what God is painting a picture of is the incompatibility of sin with him with his presence that anything which is unclean or sinful cannot come before him And he's using something like blood. He's using something like blood to paint that picture Now look, is it some specific sin in this woman's life that caused her to bleed? We know that's not true Go read all the way through the book of job But we do know that this is a result of the fall is a result of the fall and a reminder then in this woman's body of the uncleanliness. So that every time this woman looks at herself, every time somebody becomes unclean, either through something that he could control, like touching a dead body, something they can't control, like a like a lesion, like a what's the word I'm looking for? Like a staph infection on their on their arm. Or coming into their period. Every time that they find themselves unclean, they're reminded of God's hatred for sin. And how sin cannot even be found in his presence. That's the picture that God is painting here at the same time He's painting the picture and the reminder for us that sin is just as natural to the fallen man As a period is to the average woman That there's no way to avoid sin in our natural state that we are sinners by nature It's our nature to follow on in sin and to find ourselves unclean So that the laws like this were meant to drive this lady right where she was desperate for a savior This is an incredible burden. that was on her life There was nothing that she could do all of her efforts only made things worse and now she was to the point where she had nothing left but to go to jesus christ and say would you help me so this is where she is verse 27 she had heard the reports about jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said if i touch even his garments i will be made well so the woman had heard the woman had heard about jesus that's where it always begins someone hearing about jesus Hearing the word of Jesus and finding out what, what he can do. And she thinks to herself, I'm going to sneak through the crowd and I'm going to touch him. She had to sneak, right? Those people would have been furious. An unclean person just bumping into him. This is a crowd. There was no way she didn't touch some of them. This unclean person sneaking in through the crowd, but she did it. She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to talk to Jesus. She didn't want him to touch her. She thought, if I can just touch just, just the tassel, just the end of his robe, just, just a piece of his garment, then I know that I can be made clean. Now, this isn't the only time that we read about this kind of thinking. If you look ahead in Mark 6 and in Matthew 14, you'll see people that are taking their sick along the road for the same reason, so they could maybe just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. If you look in... Acts 5, you'll see that there were people that were just, they were, one of the, the, they were taking their sick and laying them aside on the road so that just the shadow of Peter might go over them. Or in Acts 19, we see that the Apostle Paul, people were taking aprons and handkerchiefs away from them, and they were giving them to the sick people and to the demon-possessed, and they were being found well. And we know that the power to heal and the power to get demons out of sick people, that this, this isn't inherent in aprons and handkerchiefs. It's the power only rests with God. That God is the sovereign. God is the sustainer. The power is with God. And that Jesus, as God the Son, possesses that power. He gives that power over. He entrusts that power over to his apostles when he sends them out. And yet at the same time, he entertains this kind of thought. He really did heal this woman. Just as people really were healed from touching the apron, touching the handkerchief, But we don't find passages in Scripture that say, look, guys, you have somebody that's sick among you, just go over to Israel, go on a a hunt, and try to find a handkerchief that touched Paul. Then you're going to be well. What do we find? Go to God. Go before God and pray. Come together as a people and pray. Set people aside by anointing and pray. The power wasn't in the cloth. And yet, this woman here, superstitious, perhaps looking for a little bit of magic, perhaps believing that Jesus' power was somehow separated from his person, not recognizing perhaps it's just a force field everywhere. Jesus goes people are just going to get healed And so she wants to come and she wants to touch the edge of his touch the edge of his garment If I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I will be healed and driven by love and by compassion. She's healed The purpose was god drawing people to his son They wanted to see in him in the person of jesus christ the kingdom of god The power the ability to heal tied up in this person So that they would be driven to come and fall down before him and worship but so many people, they were satisfied. If I could just touch something and then go away. If I could just touch Jesus once and then walk away, I'll be okay. And again, it's an act of common grace. God continued to heal just like he does today. How many people does God heal today that have placed no faith in him, given no thought to his son, have no intention of following after anybody but themselves? And yet, as an act of common grace, he continues to heal them. People that completely miss the giver, they're going around him to get the gifts. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She was healed immediately, just like everybody else that Jesus heals. Immediately, she was healed, and the blood dried up. Can you imagine the relief? Twelve years of suffering. Twelve years of not being able to enter into the temple. Twelve years of not being able to lay in a bed with her husband if she had one. Twelve years of not being able to touch anybody. Twelve years of being an absolute outcast, just like that. Just like that, because of one encounter, she's completely made whole. Verse 30, and Jesus... Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd and said who touched my garment? So apparently Jesus healed this woman without any conscious effort And now we don't need to get wrapped up in this we don't need to try to we don't need to really camp out and try to figure out Why because God didn't tell us how this works what we do know though is apparently Jesus feels power leaving himself when he heals Somebody like this. No wonder the guy was exhausted At the end of the day healing hundreds perhaps thousands of people people that fell all over him and crushed him as he continued to heal these people sure he was exhausted and then he asks who was that so again we see Jesus humanity and his divinity on full display in his divinity he healed this woman without even looking at her without even casting a glance her way in his divinity he healed her only God can heal and in his humanity he didn't know which woman had touched him incredible mystery how does this happen How are you a God who walks through, people touch your garment, and 12 years of suffering are gone, and you don't even know who the lady is? One of the greatest mysteries in all the world, but it's true. And in verse 31, and his disciples said to him, just like we would say to him, You see this crowd pressing around you, and you ask, Who touched me? What do you mean, Jesus? Who touched you? How about everybody? How about all these people? All these people touched you, and you're going to single out one person? It's like he doesn't even listen, right? He just keeps going. Verse 32, And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He doesn't even, he just looks past him. He just ignores. He's going to speak to this woman. He's going to seek her out. He's going to find her, and he's going to speak to her. You remember when Jesus was on the boat and he calmed the storm? The people were terrified. When he healed the demoniac, and that man became calm. Everybody was terrified. But when you recognize that this God is for you, when you see that this power is wrapped up in this person of Jesus Christ and you see the love and compassion that this man named Jesus Christ has, that he's not just standing up on a mountain sitting down bolt, uh, uh, lightning bolts. He's not just showing his power on inanimate objects. He's come to live and to love and to touch and to share with these people. When you see that, you fall down at his feet and worship. In fear and trembling knowing that you're sinful and knowing that he's holy, knowing the power that he possesses and knowing your frailty and fear and trembling, but you come. It's a call and you come. And so he comes and he falls, she falls down. Just like so many others in these last few weeks we've seen. And she falls down and she tells him the whole truth, everything. How do we know that this woman suffered for 12 years? How do we know that she was broke? How do we know that she had gone to doctors and that she was now worse off than before? Because she told him everything. And it wasn't just jesus that was there that had heard this lady had to have been living in shame this isn't an easy thing to talk about you people know that those of you that have little girls that have grown up when they get their period everything gets real creepy right everything becomes a secret 12 years of uncleanliness a constant reminder of her uncleanliness in her body a reminder that thing which god had ordained to remind us of our sin that everything she tried to do only made things worse? Knowing that anybody she touched would themselves become unclean? This wasn't something you wanted to just go talk about? But she didn't care anymore because she had been made clean. She had encountered a living God, and he had healed her in an instant, in a moment. And so now here she is kneeling before him, confessing it all. And Peter heard, James heard, John heard, Andrew heard, perfect strangers heard. Do you think anybody snickered? Do you think anybody judged? Do you think anybody laughed? She didn't care. For What she had been made whole the thing that was her shame was now glory he did this you couldn't touch me yesterday you couldn't touch me five seconds ago and now here I am completely made whole by him Dear children this is us he sought us out he sought this woman out he called her name he called her to her she thought she was initiating this whole thing she didn't know she thought if she could just sneak up and touch, she was going to go away perfectly okay. Just heal me physically. If you could just get me to the point where I could just be a normal human, I'll be real happy, Jesus. But he wouldn't let her rest there. He sought her out and he called her. He pursued this woman. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, I don't know of any other place in scripture where Jesus refers to someone as daughter. It's, it's it's a loving term. It's a, it's a, it's a tender term. He says to her daughter? Jesus had allowed 12 years of suffering in this woman's life. Surely it had to have felt pointless at times. What is the point? Why do I suffer like this? Why do I have to be alienated like this? Surely there had been times when she cried out to God. Why are you allowing me to remain here and to suffer? I'd be better off dead than to continue to walk around like this and now in this tender moment she sees because what happens is that when her suffering meets the good news of Jesus Christ she's drawn to him to the point that she thinks even if I could just touch the hem of his garment I'll be made whole that's it when God allows your suffering and the gospel of Jesus Christ to come together incredible things can happen And she comes to him and she falls down now on her knees Completely healed, completely made whole, and she knows it's him. She knows it's not all about the garment. She knows it's not all about a shadow. She knows it's not all about an apron. It's this guy. It's in him that I just found this healing. Daughter, your faith has made you well. What does that mean? Do you have to have faith in order to be healed by God? It certainly doesn't seem that way. Luke 6, 19 says that all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, and he healed them all. They can't all have had faith. Not real faith not saving faith, not repentant faith. Jesus says that the way is narrow and few will find it. So surely not all these people had true faith. Some people that he healed were dead. I don't know how dead people exhibit faith. So surely not all these people had faith and yet Jesus continued to heal them. And some of them would walk away and they would never turn back. To the best of our knowledge, some of these people would come to Jesus, they would receive healing, they would walk away and never give him another thought. Like 9 of the 10 lepers that came to Jesus in Luke 17. There were 10 lepers. Apparently they believed enough about Jesus to think perhaps he can heal us. Or maybe they thought we got nothing to lose. So they came to Jesus and he says, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they go along the way, they look down and they begin to realize we're being healed. I'd love to see what that looks like. They've tried to portray it in movies, but as you, as you look down and the fingers grow back? Do you reach up and realize you've got a nose again? But it, it says here that they walked along the way and that they were healed. And that one man recognizing, one of the ten, recognizing what had happened, he turned and ran back to Jesus. Like the woman, like the demoniac, he comes and he comes back to Jesus and he's praising, he's, he's singing songs to God and praising God and thanking Jesus for what he's done. And verse 17 says this, Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go on your way, your faith, has made you well what's what's the deal here those other guys got healed and they walked away now this man comes and he falls down and just like the woman just like blind Bartimaeus he's told your faith has made you well there had to be something different about the leper something different about the woman something different about blind Bart than some of these other people that received healing from him does that mean that there's power somehow? That these guys had supernatural faith? Faith that was stronger than everybody else's? Is the power in the faith? No. Faith is the way we reach out our hands and receive the gift. The power is all in God. Faith is just the way that you reach out your hands and receive that gift. Faith, by the way, is a gift from God. He gives us the gift that allows us to reach out our hands and receive the gift. It's all the work from him. So it's not about the, the power or the size of this faith. We know that faith is only valuable because of the power of Christ. It's only valuable when it's placed in him. But I want you to look at the word well there. Your faith has made you well. The Greek word for well there is sozo. There's other words for well or for healing that Mark could have used, but he used this one. The word sozo can also be interpreted delivered or saved. Aha. There must be something about this woman's faith, about that one leper's faith, about blind Bartimaeus's faith that leads to salvation. What kind of faith is that? Apparently this woman had saving faith, repentant faith, faith in Jesus Christ and who he was, not just a general belief that he can do magical things, not just a general belief that he can do some stuff and give her some gifts. She had faith that went beyond the goodies that Jesus had to offer and faith in who he was as Lord and Savior, son of the most high God, one that she wanted to be with, more than just a miracle worker. Plenty of people have that kind of worldly faith, right? You ever notice people are all of a sudden happy to have their Christian friends pray for them when they're sick. Hey, that's an incredible opportunity. That's an incredible opportunity for love and for compassion to introduce them to Jesus. But people that would never dare allow you to place hands on them and pray, all of a sudden in their time of need, they're there. The world's happy to receive magic-working Jesus, healing Jesus. Jesus is a genie in the bottle, and if I could just say the right chant, he's guaranteed to bring me something. But this was something more. This was something more. This woman trusted in Jesus beyond that. You remember when the the paralyzed man, his friends lowered him down through the roof. I think that was probably in Peter's house. Lowered him down through the roof before Jesus. The same thing. Seeing their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. How do you forgive sins? Seeing their faith, what kind of faith must it have been? True, repentant, saving faith. That's the kind of faith that this woman had. It's not the faith that everybody has, it's the faith of few. It's a gift of God when he can take your suffering and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the movement of the Holy Spirit, he can drive you to a place where you look at Jesus and you see more than Santa Claus standing with a bunch of goodies. You see your Lord and your Savior Savior and your Master, the one who you want to follow. That's the difference in this lady's life from all the others that just fell on him and touched him, from all the others that walked away with healthy bodies straight into the pits of hell, healed but as lost as lost could be, They settled for so much less than what could have come they missed out on all that he had one commentator says this it becomes increasingly clear that the central theme emerging from the story of this woman is the nature of true faith parables miracles and exorcisms do not ensure faith religious education and background does not automatically discover faith family ties are not enough to create faith Demons, in a curious way, know its basis, but oppose faith. It is people in the deepest need and desperation that seem to find faith by a variety of routes. For true faith is self-risking trust in Jesus himself. This woman had what so many others lacked. True faith in Jesus Christ himself. Not just a miracle worker. Not just an entertainer. Not a means to an end, but the end itself. That's why this woman is found in this place. And the best part, her theology wasn't even all right. She came to him with superstitious beliefs, a little bit of magic mixed in. She didn't fully comprehend everything that he was, and he doesn't send her away to go to seminary. He doesn't say, "Nope, not yet, not yet. I'll heal you physically, but you want to be saved? You better go figure it all out. Do this course. Read this book. No, in this instant, right here. By the faith that was given to her by God, she was able to reach out her hands and receive this gift, this gift of salvation, being made completely whole, not just physically but spiritually as well. In her suffering and the good news of Jesus Christ, she came to a point of falling down at his feet, is receiving more, more than physical healing, spiritual redemption. She hears his voice and he's looking at her, calling her like a shepherd calling his sheep. It's an irresistible call. He calls and she comes, trembling knees and she falls down before him. Recognizing, whoa, this is more than I bargained for. I would have settled for you to just stop my blood. I would have settled to be reunited with my family. I would have settled to be able to go back to church. But now you've called me to yourself. You're telling me that I'm saved. You're telling me that I can have a real relationship with him. Because her name had been written in the Lamb's book of life before the beginning of time. Don't you see? God had been working this woman's life to this moment. He had been working to bring her to this moment. Do you think that those 12 years of suffering had a whole new meaning at that point? Do you think those 12 years of ostracization all of a sudden made a little bit more sense? Do you think it all felt meaningless any longer? I bet it didn't. This was her testimony, and she was there proclaiming it. Shouting to the world, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was so unclean, I couldn't even enter the synagogue where this dude was the ruler. And now look at me, sitting at my master's feet, completely made whole. That's a testimony. And it's embarrassing at the start. Nobody loves to confess these things. We want everybody to believe that we had it all together. That we just came straight out of mama's womb and we were all just Billy Graham. Everything was great. God's lucky to have me on his team. But instead, will we stand? Would we proclaim that which once made us ashamed? Will we stand naked and exposed before the world and say, this is who I was, now this is who I am. Praise be to God. That's where this woman was daughter your faith has made you well go in peace she thought she was coming to get some power she didn't know she needed peace depart from peace with God you can't have peace with man you can't have peace with yourself she didn't realize she was at war with God most people don't they don't recognize how their sin has separated them from God they don't recognize their need for salvation they don't recognize any of that but then as he comes and he says listen I'm offering you peace now let me show you You thought that there was just some ceremonial thing, that the ceremonial law kept you out of the temple. You don't recognize that your sin, your actual sin, kept you out of heaven. You're at war with my father. You're a child of Satan, completely and totally separated for all eternity. And now, because you have come and you have fallen at my feet, because of the faith given to you by God, because you now reach out your hand and receive this gift of salvation, now you have peace with God. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Don't you know Jairus was standing on the side going, Daughter, yeah, daughter, mine, remember? You're headed to save her, to heal her. Jesus was headed to, a, to heal an important man's daughter. This is an important guy. And now he got sidetracked because he allowed himself to be fallen upon by all these people. Look, he could have just let the lady touch him. She'd have been physically healed, and nobody would have known any different. But he allowed himself to be sidetracked for this woman that couldn't even enter the synagogue where this guy was a ruler. This woman that had no position, no authority, no privilege, and yet he stopped. He took precious time. I don't believe this is everything that was done in that moment. I do believe he spoke to this woman for some time. I believe he spoke to the crowd for some time. I believe he took great time to stop and pay attention and to love on and to show his care and concern for this woman. Can you imagine the panic that was swelling up inside of Jairus? My daughter is dying. My daughter is dead. I'm coming. I asked you humbly. She's falling down before you on her knees. Great. I did it first. I came to you first and I fell down, Jesus. She was going to touch you and run away. Why are you calling her? Why are you wasting your time here? Get on your horse and let's go. Let's go save my daughter. This is who Jesus is. These are the people that he came to be with. These are the people that he came to save. These are the people that he came to call. It's the story of every one of you. There's not a one of you in this room that knows Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that when we get to the other side of this world, we look back from eternity upon this lifetime, you're going to see the way God used stuff just like this to draw you to him. Use stuff just like this. Stuff that seemed absolutely worthless. What possible good could God use from this? You look backwards and you see the way that he was building this story. The way he was calling you to himself. The question is, are there any of you in this room? Are there any of us standing on this stage? Are there any of us watching on television? Are there any of us that have come to Jesus, touched his robe, and thought, That's good. That's enough. I'm satisfied with this. Just give me the goodies. Good, I can go back to church. That could have happened for this lady, right? She could have touched the robe of Jesus, been made clean, and gone back and sat in the synagogue. Completely lost. But hey, I'm in church. Nobody knows any different. I blend in really well because to them I'm clean. That's the question. Have you been willing to be transparent with yourself? Confess who you really are, because your uncleanliness is probably not sitting right before you. You don't wake up in the morning and see your sin on your nightgown or on your bed. Your uncleanliness is not right before your face like this. We get really good at hiding it, sneaking around. Perhaps what God is doing by calling you into this place this morning is to push you up against that, so you can deal with your uncleanliness, so that you can see your sin, so that you can see the separation that's between him. So he says, no, I got more for you than that. Would you fall down on your knees and worship me as king? Would you be willing to confess all, all? Are you too embarrassed? People that have been cleansed, you don't have any hesitation. Perhaps that hesitancy to proclaim who you were compared to who you are now, perhaps that's evidence that you hadn't been transformed. Perhaps that's evidence that you're still unclean and you're still separated. That's the offer I extend to you this morning. That level of self-examination and asking yourself, have I truly encountered a living God? Have I truly honored him as king? Have I truly been changed? Do I have this kind of a testimony? Am I willing to proclaim it to the world? For those of you that know without a shadow of a doubt that that's exactly where you are, the next question is then what do you do with it? Are you out there professing it to the world? Look, it began with somebody telling this woman the news. We don't know how she found it out, but somebody had had the heart Somebody had the concern. Somebody saw that this woman had a problem, and they cared enough that they came to her and said, hey, I know somebody that can fix this. I've seen him do it for other people. That's the question. Are you willing to go out and share that good news, or do you believe that you hadn't been transformed? Or do you believe you can't do it for somebody else? Or do you believe they're not worthy enough? Do you believe Jesus only comes to, to, to heal important people's daughters? Or do you believe that he gets distracted along the way? He'll get pulled aside. He'll allow people like this woman That's the question. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that um, you're not just a God of important people. You're not just a God of the pretty people, the religious people, the self-righteous people. Father, we thank you that you have come to save the sinner and the sick and the unclean and the unworthy like me. Like us. Father, I thank you that you're a God who pursues. Father, I know that you have poured out so many good gifts into my life long before I ever cried out to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I thank you that you didn't allow me to settle there. That you sent your Holy Spirit to stir in my heart that I would believe the word that Jesus is more than just a vending machine or a genie. You drove me to a place where I would fall on my knees and worship him as Lord. Thank you for that opportunity to worship him this morning. Father, as we sing songs of praise, I pray that they would um, they would echo that that's in our heart. Father, that we would glorify you with the words that we sing and that we would be changed as a result of singing. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.